Thank you, Sylvia. Well, here it is. My last sermon as pastor of Lynn Baptist Church. When I was uh, thinking some time ago as to the passage that uh, I should uh, focus on uh, some weeks ago, it wasn't a difficult decision. The thought readily came to mind that I should preach on the passage in Acts chapter 20. Uh, I didn't actually specify which verses that I'm going to be looking at in in the newsletter in the uh, pre-publicity, but when I was uh, just hanging around this morning, my dear friend and brother Ken Irwin, uh, who's here with us this morning from Cherry Lane, good to see you, asked if we were providing lunch for everybody. I was kind of a bit puzzled by that. But then he said, Acts chapter 20, of course, points, is, is the story, it was, contains the story of Paul preaching his last sermon at Troas before heading back to Jerusalem. And it says there that, uh, you know, they gathered together for the breaking of bread, which we've done. And then Paul, because he intended to leave the next day, kept talking until midnight. <laughs> I won't preach till midnight. I promise you, you will definitely be home by tea time. But the passage that I'm going to look at is not that one. It's the bit that follows in Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 13. So if you wish to turn to that now, please do. Or 16, rather. Verse 16. Let's say Paul is on his way back after his... uh, the third missionary journey, which has been very uh, profitable and great blessing, had followed as he had crossed across under the guidance of the Spirit of God to, to Europe. He's now heading, sailing home. Verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the spirits, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, 
Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by the kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your word to ring out clearly this morning. We pray that we will be given ears to hear and hearts to understand and respond to whatever it is you want to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's hard to think that it's now just over 20 years since I first came to Lim. I never even knew it existed before then. It was a kind of place that I undoubtedly sailed past on the M56 on the way to North Wales from Poynton without realising it was here. But I came to meet the deacons on that fateful day the 14th of February, 1994, Valentine's Day. It was also the start of the uh, February half-term holiday club. And there was uh, a young Mark Instone up the front (laughs) who had just become a proud dad. As a result of that meeting, uh, I was invited to come and meet the church and uh, to preach with a squint, as it's uh, facetiously referred to. It was Mother's Day. It was an all-age service. What a baptism of fire. Well, I uh, survived that experience, preached also at the evening service, which was considerably more orthodox, and was invited to return by the church to preach with a view. And that resulted, of course, in the call to become the next pastor. And that ministry began in September 1994. Looking back, I think in those days, I expected that we would probably remain in Lim until Susie, who was then 10, finished her education, moved on to university, which would seem to be a convenient time to move on. But... Even at the end of that period, there was no sense that God was was calling us away. And uh, I went on a sabbatical in 2006, spending time alone with God, seeking God's guidance for the future, and came back after that period with a clear sense of conviction that there was still work for God that God wanted us to do. That conviction, of course, was severely tested soon after when the church went through a very troubled time. I don't want to return to that, I don't want to go over it, it was, it was difficult, it was painful, it was in the past, these things happen in church life, sadly they do, they shouldn't. Well, we got through that, 
mercifully and we can now leave Lim and the church here in the confidence that the church is in a healthy position and that we can move positively into the future of continuing blessing. You know, we're confident that this is the right move for us, however difficult that decision has been for us to make. One which has clearly been opened up to us by God. And if we seem a little bit unduly excited at the prospects of leaving, please don't get the wrong impression. It's not that we're going to go gladly. We are certainly going to miss you because we love you. You've been an important part of our life. Jill and I will be celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary later this year, which means that we have spent half of our married life here in Lynn. That's a significant amount of time. And it's a significant period that we have been through. And so we will be sad to leave. We will miss you. But of course we know that God has further opportunities for us. We don't know what they are yet. But we believe that God still has stuff for us to do in some way or other. People are always saying to us, Chris, no one ever retires from Christian ministry. And in a sense, that is true. We never retire completely. We just move on to something different. And that's where we have come to in our stage of life. Looking back over the 20 20 years that we've been here, we can say that the church has certainly grown significantly since we came. When Jill and I joined the church 20 years ago, I think we were members 99 and 100. We now have 150 in membership, which for a church in our kind of community, a village with a lot of transient population, that is a remarkable amount of growth. Now, I take no credit for that. It was very humbling to hear all the praise and the plaudits at our farewell celebration back on the 4th of April. What a wonderful occasion that was. What a surprise that was for us. It was lovely to hear that. But I think both Jill and I thought during the course of that that we just wanted to say it's not us. It's the Lord that has done it through us. It's been the work of God for which we are incredibly grateful. We could point to a number of areas in which the church has grown, not just numerically, but in other areas. And I suppose one of the most dramatic changes that we have noticed as a family has been in the growth of our youth work. When we came here, Daniel was, what, 16, thereabouts? He was probably the only young person in the church of that age. Look at it now. Now, I can honestly say that I take no credit for that whatsoever. Because for me, working with teenagers is something like the Daniel in the lion's den experience. That is not my comfort zone. I'm very happy to delegate that kind of responsibility to people who are much more able, much more gifted to doing that. And I say that with uh, no disrespect to our young people who are sitting there. You're not lions at all. Tremendous things that God has done over the last 20 years. But over those 20 years, I've often been asked, you know, what is your vision? 
What is your vision for the church? I'm never quite sure what people expect me to say when they ask that question. Are they expecting something really dynamic, really complex, you know, a great program of events, a great uh, number of intricate plans that will result in an explosion of growth in the church? Well, I'm a simple person. And for me, my vision has been really simple. My vision has been that the church should become what the church was always meant to be. And that's not complicated. It's not just about implementing all the latest schemes, programs, projects that come along at regular intervals in church life. There's one Baptist minister, writer, Ian Stackhouse, who is the pastor at Guildford Baptist Church. He wrote a book some time ago, which I think was called The Purpose-Centered Gospel. And he just comments on the fact that all these schemes, programs, and projects that come along every now and again can often be akin to fads. They come along... They gain popularity. Something goes on in a church life that causes that church to grow. People hear about it. They encourage somebody to write a book or to organize a whole series of conferences. And people just want to jump onto the bandwagon, thinking that that will be the answer to their church problems. That it will be the latest cure-all for all uh, static churches. But, you know, I've been around a long time. And fads come and they go. They talk about them for a lot, long time, and then nobody talks about them. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One of them is that sometimes God blesses a particular church and a particular individual in a certain way. And their church takes off. But God never intended that for other churches and other people. It was for them particularly. And the task of any church is to discover what God wants for us, rather than to try and copy and emulate what is happening in other places. For me, the vision is very simple. We must become the church that God intends the church to be. And that means that being church is simply being a family of believers in Jesus Christ who are committed to one another, committed to the body of Christ, who express their love for God by loving one another and loving their neighbor as themselves, who are committed to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ and in the love of God with a desire to fulfill the great commission that Jesus Christ gave us to go and make disciples of all nations. The vision is to do that in the way God wants us to do it. Simple. So, if you're not a believer here this morning, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Become part of of that family of believers, which is the church. 
If you're not baptised, get baptised. If you're not a church member, become a church member and get stuck into the work that God has called this church to do. Get involved with people because primarily it is about people. It's not only about programs. It's not only about projects. It's not only about plans. They must all be subsidiary to the main purpose and vision of the church of being the people of God. So what of the future for Lynn Baptist Church? Understandably, the question's being asked, well, what kind of minister should we be looking for? Now, I've deliberately stepped back from any personal involvement in that process because you are the church of tomorrow, not me. You are the ones who need to take that responsibility of answering that question, what kind of minister should we be looking for? But I would say that the minister that you should be looking for is the minister of God's choice. The minister of God's choice. Yes, I know we're all human and we will all have our own personal ideas. We will all have our own particular preferences. But I want to say that you need to put them to one side and discern what God wants. Because at the end of the day, what God wants may not necessarily be what you would prefer. However, I do believe in the Bible that there are some significant things which are said about the qualities and characteristics that God looks for in those who have oversight in his church. Those who serve as overseers. Paul addressed the elders at Ephesus as the overseers of that church. And in the interregnum, those who are elders within this church will fulfill that role until the church is in a position to hand over that overseeing responsibility to a new pastor with whom they will work in partnership. And I sense that God would just have me share some of those qualities and characteristics which emerge from this passage as I take my leave. It's said that all good sermons have three points and alliteration. Well, I've got six points. (laughs) But I will finish before midnight. And there is alliteration. P is always a good letter. Um, Those of you that know my um, sort of dietary preferences, I can't stand Brussels sprouts, but I do like peas. And so this morning, friends, I will give you a feast of peas. Can I just say, before I look at them one by one, if you do not look for these six things in the new pastor you will mess up. If you get them right, God will bless you. So then, the Apostle Paul is realising that he's finishing his ministry. 
As far as Ephesus is concerned, he wants to finish well. He wants to leave the church in Ephesus where he had effectively pastored for some three years. He wants to leave them in a healthy position and under a strong and committed leadership. And so on route to Jerusalem, he gathers the church leaders and he gives them a stirring team talk from which these six characteristics emerge. Thanks, John. Firstly, the overseer must be a person with priorities. All that Paul lived for was to finish the work that God had given him to do. Look at what it says in verses 23 to 24 where he says, I don't care, basically, what's predicted about prison. I don't care who says they're going to kill me. That doesn't bother me one bit. Why? Because I'm going to keep on ministering. Whatever the future holds for me, his priority was to complete the task that Jesus had given him to do. It said, and we all know the saying, you can please some of the people all of the time, all of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. A pastor, an overseer cannot be all things to all people, and he or she shouldn't even try. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, said this, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's strong stuff, isn't it? If I am trying to please people, I will not be a servant of Jesus. If your ministry is to be popular with people, well, you've blown it. From day one. And so the church should not place upon any pastor the intolerable burden of meeting the expectations of every group and every individual in the church. It cannot be done. Don't expect your new pastor to be at every activity that's run by the church, to be at every single meeting. The pastor is the overseer. Is not the doer. I had a meeting this week with some of my uh, clergy colleagues, colleagues in Lim, amongst whom was Father Tony Elder from St. Winifred's, the Catholic Church, and we were talking about our Easter services. And uh, he very interestingly said that within the Catholic Church, for him, it's like being the playwright, the producer, the director, the leading actor, and all the supporting players. He has to do everything. You know, there was a time even within Baptist circles where that was the case, and we talked about one-man ministry. Mercifully, that is not true any longer. It cannot be true, certainly in a church the size of ours. We all have to play our part. When the church recently went through the process of looking at our purpose statements, and we considered how various activities that we did fell into the various parts of our purpose statements. There was an interesting gap, really, when it came to developing the gifts. You remember that? There was a, a real kind of absence of things that we did that were developing the gifts, certainly primarily. 
And to a certain extent, that is true. But, you know, how do we develop the gifts in the church? It's not that we don't do it. We certainly do do it. But we do it by releasing people to use those gifts. That's how we develop them. How do I develop as a preacher? By preaching. How do you develop as a worship leader in the church? By leading worship. That's the way we do it. By getting people involved in every aspect of church life. So the pastor then needs to be free to set his or her own priorities according to the tasks that Jesus has given him to do. And if that upsets some people, as it's likely to do, then it must be seen as a natural consequence of a person who is setting priorities according to God's agenda for his life. A person with priorities. Secondly, a person with principles. Verse 19. Talks about humility. The service of Christ, he says, is done with great humility. And that's a basic to the service of the king, if that service is to be effective. Verse 18, he says, when, he, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. The reason why Paul was so successful was because he was honest, he was open, he was transparent, and he set a positive example to the church. There was no credibility gap between what he said and what he was as a person. And people were able to emulate his life. You see, the Christian life boils down to example, and biblical leadership is all about example. And the thing that, Paul, that made Paul what he was, was the example that he set. It wasn't his methods. It was the fact that he was a man who was Christ-like. He was the right kind of person. And so really, I don't care what new ideas people have for leadership. If you're not the right example to the flock of God, you'll never pull it off. Paul wanted to ensure that those who are now going to be responsible for leading the church in Ephesus were people of character. Verse 28, he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and then over the church of God. Because you're not ready to face the responsibility of ministry unless you're right with God. That's a basic ingredient. Person with principles. Holiness is a basic commodity in all leadership. It isn't about tremendous charisma. It isn't about dynamic leadership. Those things don't qualify you to be a leader. What does qualify you to be a leader is your Christ-like character. So friends, ensure you appoint a person with principles, a person with godly character who will lead by example. Thirdly, a person who preaches the word of God. You'd expect this from me, wouldn't you? Paul's obligation to the church was to teach. Look at what he says in verse 20. You know 
that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And it wasn't just teaching the church, it was about evangelism as well. Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul saw his ministry not only in reference to Christians, but to the unsaved as well. He knew that they had an obligation to hear the word, and that's what he committed himself to. And he sets out the very simplicity of the gospel. It's about repenting from sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what he preached to Jew and Gentile alike. Paul was really burdened about preaching the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he says, don't praise me for preaching. That's what I have to do. In fact, if I don't preach, then you would have every right to criticize and condemn me. I think it's important to point out that Paul's presentation of the gospel and his teaching and his preaching ministry was always thorough. It was always complete. It was never shoddy. It was never shabby. There was never any missing ingredients. He taught, he says, everything that was helpful. Writing to Timothy, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, is helpful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Now, if you're going to teach people about the things of God, if you're going to rebuke, if you're going to correct, if you're going to train, if you're going to declare the whole will of God, and if you're going to give everything that is helpful, then your ministry is going to be involved with doing very simple things. Teaching the Bible. Preaching the word of God. And that's why I have been so committed to that task over 20 years. If you're going to cover the whole will of God, you've got to preach systematically through the scriptures. I think mention was made a few weeks ago at the high school that in July 1994... At my ordination service at Point and Baptist Church, Roger Martin, the former pastor of that church, was a good friend. He was the encourager. He was the man that uh, set me on the road to training for Baptist ministry at, sorry, Spurgeon's College. I thought I'd get it in once more before I go. <laughs> Spurgeon's, of course, was formerly known as the Preacher's College. That was the really fundamental task that that college was committed to train people to do, to preach the word of God. And for those few of you who might have been at that service back in July 1994, you will remember, as I still do, Roger's thunderous challenge to me. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. And that has been my priority because I believe that that's my gift and calling. And if I've been used to contribute anything towards the growth of Lynn Baptist Church, it will have been in that area. Because it is the sincere milk of the word of God that brings growth to God's people. So in looking for the right pastor, I would recommend that you ensure that he or she is a person who will carry on that vital ministry without fear and without favour. A person who pastors the flock of God. That's the next characteristic. Keep watch over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, he says. 
be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I came across a quote um, while I was preparing for this, which I'll share with you. It says this, I don't know who wrote it, but this is what he wrote. There's something about sheep that's characteristic of Christians. They're a little clump of helpless, ignorant, stupid followers. Now, I'm not sure if that guy was the pastor of a church. If he was, and if he'd made that kind of comment at the outset of his ministry, I don't think he would have lasted very long. But there is something about us as sheep that need a shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd cares for his sheep. And we're part of the one big flock of whom Jesus is the good shepherd. But of course we've been localised. We are a little flock of the big flock in Lim. And God takes the whole flock. He divides it up into little flocks. And he then appoints under shepherds to care for those little group of sheep. Pastors everywhere are under shepherds. And the heart of shepherding is to feed. Because that's what the shepherd does most. It's to get the sheep to where they can feed best. Do you remember the words of Jesus when he was commissioning Peter after his resurrection? Do you remember on the shores of Galilee he said to him three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you remember what Peter said in reply? Sorry, what Jesus said in reply? To Peter saying, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And that tells me that what Jesus' priority was when it comes to pastoral ministry. It's not primarily about being a social worker, although that may come into it on occasions. It's about feeding the flock of God. But leading, directing is also important, an important task of the shepherd. Discerning with others the direction of the church. The sheep didn't decide where they would go to find food. The sheep followed the shepherd. But it also involves watching and warning the flock. There is protection involved. The shepherd has the staff, the rod The good shepherd doesn't just blissfully lead his sheep out into some nice meadow. He's watching all the time, on guard, watching for wars, watching for thieves, watching for predators which will come in and destroy the flock. And if you look at this passage in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul says to the elders, I know one thing, that false teachers are going to arrive as soon as I've gone. And you as a church and the elders in particular will need to be alert either to the presence or to the arrival of people who will turn up and try to influence the church with their own agendas, taking advantage of the vacuum that's left when I go. You have a duty to protect the church so that it is still progressing healthily on the appointment of a new pastor who will similarly lead, direct, feed Protect the flock of God. Never forget whose church this is. 
Jesus said to Peter three times, feed my sheep. My sheep. It's God's church. And the pastor will be caring for God's property. Notice too at the end of verse 28, the church is that which Jesus has purchased with his own blood. What's that saying? It's saying that the flock of God is so precious to God that he paid the supreme price. And if the church is that precious to God, it ought to be precious to us and to any future under-shepherd. We're nearly there. A person who perseveres. In Acts 20, he talks about the plotting of the Jewish opponents. You know, enduring opposition is part of servant ministry. Jesus became a servant and he suffered. And if any one of us are a humble servant of God and you really serve him, there are going to be times when you will experience criticism, you will experience opposition. And I suppose there's a sense in which we could all gauge our Christian effectiveness by the kind of waves that we make. You know, if you don't make waves in church life, then maybe you're not being very effective. Look again at verse 20. Paul says, I kept nothing back that was helpful. And that's one of the dangers in any ministry. You get to thinking how people are going to be affected by what you do and what you say. Worrying about your own popularity. So you may avoid saying certain things, doing certain things, so that you don't upset people. But you know, if it's the word of God, and if it's the truth of God, and if it's all about the question of right and wrong, then you've just got to put it out there and face the consequences. You do what's right. You do not hold back anything that is profitable. Because that is the only way that you can fulfill your ministry. And a new pastor needs to be prepared to persevere in the face of opposition, wherever that opposition originates. And finally, a person who is committed to prayer. Verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. That says it all. The last but certainly not the least. Prayer is the key for the future of Lynn Baptist Church. It's important all the more from this moment on. Absolutely vital if any new ministry is to prosper under God. And I trust that the new minister, whoever that person is, when they are inducted, they will as part of that induction service, commits himself to prayer. He will encourage you to be faithful in prayer. But equally important, he will look to you to support his ministry in prayer. Just as you have done for us. So, thank you for the privilege of being your pastor for 20 years. Thank you for all the love and the care that you have shown to us over those years. For all the generosity that you've shown. Goodbye.
and God bless. Let's pray. Lord of the years, your love has kept and guided. And we thank you for that. Continue that guidance, we pray, in the life of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I always like to end a hymn that has some kind of uh, significance to the message, but for once I've kind of departed from that. Can I go back to that day in July 1994 when at Point and Baptist Church I was ordained to the pastoral ministry? In that service, the opening hymn was a hymn that we had sung as youngsters. Sylvia, I'm sure, will remember it well as much as Jill and I do and Gray. We used to sing it at Thornton Heath. A song which is really a praise, song of praise to God. And it felt right to end my ministry where it began. The God of Abraham. Praise.